As we worship together this morning, our text of emphasis is Acts chapter 4, starting with verse 32. And it says there this, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything that they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Uh, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, uh, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. And now a, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. And then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think to do such a thing? You have not just lied to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. And about three hours later, his wife came in, uh, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. And Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will also carry you out. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died also. And then the young man came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Let's pray. Uh, oh God, as we consider this uh, disturbing narrative and are thoughtful about it today, we pray for a better understanding of what uh, you're trying to get across to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. There was a, um, an interesting uh, story, an update to a story in the New York uh, Times uh, this week, and uh, it starts with this. I'll actually uh, read from, from the article. It says this, in 2014, as evidence mounted about the harmful effects of uh, diesel exhaust on human health, a scientist in an Albuquerque laboratory conducted an unusual experiment. Uh, ten monkeys squatted in airtight chambers, watching cartoons for entertainment as they inhaled fumes from a diesel Volkswagen Beetle. You got the picture? Ten monkeys, they're in airtight tubes, and the the, the exhaust from a Volkswagen is being pumped in so that that's what they're, they're breathing while they watch cartoons. Yeah. Oh, oh, 
oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, okay, we're getting there, but okay, yes, very much, okay. So German automakers, the article continues, had, uh, had financed the experiment in an attempt to prove that diesel vehicles with the latest technology were cleaner than the smoky models of old. But the American scientists conducting the test were unaware of one critical fact. The Beetle, provided by Volkswagen, Volkswagen, had been rigged to produce pollution levels that were far less harmful in the lab than were on the road. Now, uh, this was somewhat new information that was actually just released this week about this monkey experiment and how deep Volkswagen's uh, uh, plan was to promote this so-called clean diesel. And uh, this goes all the way back to 2006 when the board of Volkswagen, if you can imagine, uh, got together and made the fateful decision that they were intentionally going to install illegal software in all of their diesel vehicles. And the software would be able to tell when a car was being monitored for emissions and would change the way the engine operated so that it would appear much more clean and uh, efficient. It would actually detect and switch how the, uh, the engine operated, and as soon as the test was over, it knew to switch back because it was very difficult for the engine to run in this in incredibly efficient uh, matter. Well, um, as you can imagine, this has been quite the scandal for uh, Volks Volkswagen. Any Volkswagen owners here? Diesel Volkswagen? I love this, uh, not to call you out, I mean, who's going to raise their hand after that? Like, um, I love this ad, so this was one of the ads, they were clean diesel, and I think anytime you start your ad with like really, you know something's up. No, like really clean diesel. Like, no, I mean like really, it's really clean, we promise. Um, so this was their push to get into the American uh, car market in a bigger way. By the way, in 2012, 72,000 people in Europe died prematurely because of nitrogen dioxide pollution which comes primarily from diesel vehicles. So they knew that it was harming people in Europe, and the United States has more stringent, apparently, diesel regulations, if we can believe that. Um, and I think we had Kathleen from the EPA this, here this morning, and I thanked her for her work on this, which I don't think she had anything to do for, but I thanked her anyway. Um, she's happy to be back at work, by the way, because the government started back up, and so she went back to work. Anyway. Side note, harmful pollution coming from these cars. They want to sell cars, more cars in the United States. So what do you do? Install software that is going to make it look like you're keeping your promise without really keeping your promise. They promised to produce a vehicle that was environmentally friendly, but in practice, they knowingly produced something that was going to be harmful for people. We're in the midst of our uh, winter uh, teaching series looking at the newborn Christian church in the book of Acts. And last week we said that uh, there were several attributes that made the church act as a unified uh, community. And one of those attributes was that they had uh, economic equality or they strived for economic equality. And so as we uh, think about that newborn uh, church, we can also think about uh, two examples of the this economic equality uh, being practiced in the church. And the first example is mentioned in Acts chapter 4. You have this man whose name was Joseph, but he had a nickname, and that was a, uh, the son of encouragement, which seems like a really uh, positive nickname, if you're going to get a nickname, son of encouragement. 
That's a positive nickname. So um, Joseph is an example of what was happening in the community that was the uh, church. He sold a piece of uh, property, and he brought all of the proceeds from the sale in, and the Bible says he put it at the apostles' feet. The implication was he was giving it over to the leaders of the community of faith, and then we're told that they distributed funds like this to those people who were in need in the community. It's actually a really kind of cool concept. And by the way, this is a free will gift. Nobody was compelled to give. You did this on your own. You didn't have to, to give. You know, in the, uh, I was thinking about our own tradition, the Adventist community, you know, we have, we have various ways in which we give. We give our tithe. We give our offering, the tithe, the 10%. And um, I mean, there's some relationship here. You may know that if the tithe that you give, the 10% you give from your income goes to help uh, pay uh, for teachers and pastors around the world. That's the primary role of the tithe. And so there's this idea of everybody shares together so that uh, workers in the church can be uh, provided for. But the Adventist church doesn't have a model as cool as the first church where it wasn't just people are going to be working for his church, it's people in need are going to be taken care of. And again, this was part of this idea of economic equality, something that really helped to unify the church. There, there wasn't one person who was working really hard, but just because their job it had happened in their job that they would make a lot of money um, and, and another person who might also be working hard but because of the circumstances of their job they didn't make it mu as much money there wasn't a place where one would have and one would have not they were sharing together and this was all based on free will you did this uh, because you wanted the community to flourish and you didn't want to see your brother or sister hurting in a need it's a really really cool concept that we don't really have a, a, a model for or a, an example of uh, today at least not here so maybe something as advent hope as we think about uh, what we need to continue to become in the future we we need to uh, wrestle with um, so you have this beautiful example of joseph but then conversely right after it just to contrast it, it you have this second example of the desire for economic equality in the church but not a positive one so there is a man and his uh, wife ananias and and Sapphira, and so while the community of believers are all sharing they had, and people like Barnabas are bringing, they apparently were inspired to do the same. We don't know what happened. It doesn't say whether they were at a worship service, and you know the music was just killing it that day, and there was maybe a uh, in an old school uh, call at the end of the service, come on down, and maybe they got inspired, and they were just like, we're going to sell some property and we're going to give it to the community. We don't know. We don't know what happened. We don't know if Nick was there, and he was just playing amazingly that day, and they were, they were inspired, and they were compelled. But they, they have this property, in which, by the way, in this day, if you owned property, that was kind of a big deal, so you were at a certain class in society. So they owned this property, like Barnabas, like Joseph, and they decided they were going to sell it, and they were going to give it to the church. Now, again, we don't know what happened, but they sell the property. Maybe it went for a little more than they were anticipating. You know, it could have been a in a, a good area in Jerusalem, maybe they were in the, you know, there was some great coffee shops in the neighborhood, and, uh, you know, gentrification was there, and the prices had really gone up, and so they sell this property, and maybe they get more than they were anticipating, and so they sit down together, and they say to themselves, apparently, hey, let's keep some of this for ourselves. Who is going to know? Who is going to know? So we don't know what it was. Did they sell it? They, they kept 20% and they gave 80%? We don't know, but they bring 
the money in and they present it as if they've given uh, everything. And therein lies the problem. And so we, uh, again, we recognize that this is a free will gift. You didn't have to give. They weren't compelled to give. We know that, by the way, because in Peter, who's addressing this issue in Acts 4.4, says this. What were you thinking? Uh, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? Basically, like, what are you doing? You didn't have to give the money. You didn't have to. You kept it yourself. There was no obligation to do this. And yet you, you brought it acting as if you were giving uh, everything. And so this helps to explain maybe a little bit about why this is such a grievous issue. By professing that they were donating uh, everything, they were uh, professing one thing but practicing another. And Peter says, hey, you're not just lying to other humans, to the community here, you're lying to God. Their profession was inconsistent with their practice. And to God, at least at this time and this place, this just couldn't be overlooked. And we think, you know, again, this seems really incredibly uh, harsh, but God is trying to build up this uh, newborn uh, church, this newborn uh, community, and to have people who are professing in one way and practicing in a different way, especially in this matter, it just was serious enough that it led to their death. The message was, uh, was effective. Uh, chapter 4, verse 11 says, Great fear uh, seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. I mean, you can imagine, right? Two people uh, dropped dead. I mean, we talked about uh, Frank and the, the support team. That was a rough day for the support team, right? The young men, it's the young men, they came in and they had to take one out and then three hours later take another one out. Frank, let's hope we make it through the service without the support team having to take anyone out. This got very morose very quickly. I'm sorry. <laughs> Jokes about people dying in the middle of the service rarely go over well. I should have written that down. Where was I? I got distracted. My own foolishness. Um, this issue of inconsistency between profession uh, and practice, of course, is not relegated to the newborn uh, Christian church. It's, it's actually an issue that uh, I would make the case probably all of us have uh, wrestled with, whether it's in your professional life or it's in your personal life. The idea of professing something, making a promise to something, but then in actual practice, having an inconsistency is not unusual, sadly. It seems to be uh, a part of our makeup of human beings. We want to, we make promises, we profess to something, but in practice, we do things that are uh, different. We say we're going we're gonna to do something, we commit to something, but our practice is different. Uh, Christians even have a particular word that we love to describe that, this called uh, being hypocritical or hypocrite, which comes from, uh, you, you know this, from the Greek, which means uh, to be an actor. Hypocrites, to be an actor. And so the idea is you're acting in one way, uh, but you're actually, in, in reality, doing something different. This dichotomy, this inconsistency between uh, what you profess and how you uh, practice. And so uh, this leaves us with the question, well, what makes us do this? Why are we actors? Why are we, as, as humans, oftentimes inconsistent with what we uh, profess? A couple of ideas. Uh, first of all, really simple, we want to appear 
more noble, uh, good, moral, whatever, uh, than we actually are. We want to appear better than we actually are, whether that's wanting to fit in. Again, there's a, there was a movement into, in the community where everyone was giving, and uh, so Ananias and Sapphira were like, hey, we want to get on board with this. We don't want to look like the outliers here. People know that we have property. People know that we are in a certain uh, uh, cast of society. And if Barnabas is giving, we got to look like we're giving uh, too. And so let's make this thing uh, happen. And who's going to know if we keep uh, 20%? Uh, we want to look noble. It's not just an Ananias and Sapphira thing. We want to look noble. And so sometimes we profess things to try to make ourselves look good. But when it comes to actually following through, we are ineffective. And so there is this dichotomy between what we profess and how we uh, practice. Uh, secondly, uh, the reality is that uh, consistency to what we profess and putting it into practice is often uh, very difficult. I mean, it's really easy to say something or to commit something verbally to profess something, but actually putting that into practice can be incredibly, incredibly uh, difficult, it's especially when what you profess uh, requires a practice that is abnormal uh, to you. In, in, in what is going to be, I'm sad to say, maybe a theme for 2018 for me, at least at this point, is that, you know, I, 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 that I, I profess that I would like to exercise and, and get in better shape every so. I, I want that. I, did, I profess that. In fact, I profess that I, I want that. But, but in practice, in practice, getting up at, at five and going for a run, it, it, it's not happening. It's not happening. You guys with me here? Some of you, you're so, you're so good. You get up and you do that run. You exercise. Renee, you exercise. Really? You look so fit. I see you exercising. Not, not, I'm not judging by anybody's fitness, but, but Ray, Renee is a, he's a fit guy. Evaristo. You work out with Evaristo, don't you? Sometimes. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. I don't want to put you on the spot now that you have to confess to something. Anyway, you get what I'm going, right? Confessing to something like what you want to, what you want to do, what you want to be, or what you are doing, um, and then actually doing it can be, can be difficult. And so, especially when it's something abnormal to you, something different. So... You profess, I, 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 I am going to be this. And then doing, there can be a, a dichotomy. Now, I guess I haven't really been telling you that I am exercising and not. I'm confessing to you just each week so that we can, I can work this out. This, basically, this time is for me to confess my sins to you. <laughs> when we profess something and then practice something uh, different, that, uh, that inconsistency uh, is problematic. And the truth is that uh, on our own, we're going to always run into this problem. We profess the things, and maybe it's aspirational for us. It's what we want to be. We profess the things, but then in practice, it's just really, really incredibly difficult for us to actually follow through on being the people that we really want to, to be. And this is where the good news of the gospel uh, comes in. The gospel, the message that uh, there is one who is consistent. When we're not consistent, when we're incapable of doing what we've even promised to do, when we profess one thing and practice something else, 
there's good news that there is one who has done what we cannot do. Uh, we read things like Isaiah chapter 53, one of the great promises, one of the great professions of the Bible. It says, talking in the, in the, uh, to the future, even in the language of the past, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We are all like sheep and have gone astray. Each of us has turned our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, and he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. This is a profession of what God is going to do. It's a promise of what God is going to uh, do. And therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and, and will divide the spoils and his life will be poured out to death. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This is a promise, a God's promise, a profession of what he's going to do on behalf of humanity. And then we think of Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 12 when he said this profession, this promise. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish... So the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. This is Jesus' profession, his promise. And thank God, Jesus followed through on his profession. He followed through on his promise. There was, there, there, there was, there was no difference between what he said he was going to do and what he actually did in practice. Profession and promise were one and the same. Jesus lived consistently. We can take hope that in our inconsistency there is one who has lived consistently. And further, we read in, in Romans chapter uh, 8, the great apostle, the great teacher to this newborn uh, Christian church. We read these words where, uh, where the apostle Paul talks about what the implications are of the fact that Jesus, unlike us, has lived a consistent life. He kept his promises. Paul says this, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation. If you've lived an inconsistent life, if you, you've made promises but you haven't kept them, there's now no condemnation for you. This is good news, by the way. Because through Christ, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh... God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. He condemned our, 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 our nature to, to, to not follow through with our promises to being inconsistent. And he condemned this in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. That's a lot of lot to take in some, some deep theological concepts here but the, the the simple fact of the matter is that Romans 8 is telling us that because of Jesus and what he's done on our behalf we have hope that even though we may have lived lives and our living lives that are inconsistent that our our promises that our profession that we, we profess to is different than our practice in Jesus we have the hope of forgiveness and the hope of transformation this highlights one of the most dis disturbing and discouraging realities of living inconsistently. If you have lived inconsistently, if you have uh, made a profession 
that's one thing, but your practice is another, another thing, then you know about the concept of guilt. Have you ever felt guilty? You professed to one thing, and then you practiced another thing. Now, Christians in particular are experts at guilt. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, Christians are experts at guilt. Guilt. First of all, we like to come together in gatherings like this and worship services like this, and we like to, we love to, whether intentionally or subconsciously, act like we have all of our junk together. You know what I'm talking about? Because you've made some kind of profession, and so you've, you've made this profession, and you want to at least appear like you are keeping up with that profession. You all with me here? All right, so we, Christians in particular, we pick on uh, Christians in particular. I recognize not everybody here may be Christian. Christians love to profess and then act like we are keeping up with that profession, with that promise. But in reality, you stink at the practice of it. You guys with me here? One profession and practice. And so, but, but, but the problem is in our subconscious, when our profession and our practice don't match up, we feel guilty. We feel terribly, terribly guilty because we've made a profession, but our practice doesn't match up, and so we feel guilty. We, we know that there's an inconsistency in our, in our inner being, and we don't have to go too far down in our inner being to figure that out. It's usually right at the surface. And so guilt is, a, is, a, is a, in one sense, is a terrible thing. It's certainly a terrible thing to live with. Now, there is an argument that guilt is good, that it increases accountability, and it helps us to live inconsistently. Um, that guilt is a, a positive thing. And so I was interested in reading uh, the research of Kelly um, McGonigal. And uh, uh, Dr. McGonigal is actually a teacher at Stanford University, and she has what is described as a wildly successful course called The Science of Willpower. And she uh, wrote a book called The Willpower Instinct, How Self-Control Works, Why It Matters, and What You Can Do to Get More of It. And in this book, uh, Kelly says uh, this about the issue of uh, guilt. She says, surprisingly, it's forgiveness, not guilt, that increases accountability. Researchers have found uh, that Taking a self-compassionate point of view on a personal failure makes people more likely to take personal responsibility for the, for the failure and then to, take a self, then to take a self-critical view of themselves. They are also more willing to receive feedback and advice from others and more likely to learn from the experience. The implication is, is clear. Like we, we were taught maybe that guilt is a good thing because it leads to accountability. But, but uh, she says, listen, what really makes the difference is not guilt, but forgiveness. Forgiveness. Now, her case is like self-forgiveness. Like you need to forgive yourself, and there's certainly an aspect to that. We like have to forgive ourselves, right, when we live inconsistent lives. But what is better than self-forgiveness? How about forgiveness from the creator, the one who put all of this into to, to play, the one that, that humanity is oftentimes all too afraid of? And has been presented as one who is really kind of angry at all of us, right? Uh, the good news is that Kelly's research tells us that what we read in Romans chapter 8 is actually the best news that you will ever hear. That the, the creator, the one who got this whole thing started, who, who, who designed humanity, that that creator recognizing the brokenness of our 
species. Recognizing the brokenness of our community, recognizing the brokenness of, our, of ourselves as individuals did not just give up on us. And that through the work of Jesus, we have hope for a new future, that we have been forgiven. That the guilt that you are experiencing because the inconsistency between your profession and your practice, that, that God is willing to throw that guilt away. In fact, the great analogy of throwing it in the ocean so that it sinks down and you don't have to worry about it anymore because he's not going to worry about it anymore. This is good news. Are you with me? You, you see good news? God's work in Jesus is good news for us because now there is no more condemnation for those who have lived inconsistent lives. But there's, there's better news. It's not just a forgiveness of our inability to live consistently in the past. I mean, that's good news to be freed from that. But the, the truth is that not only does God want to free us from that burden of guilt from the past, but God also wants to help us to live consistency consistently from this day forward. See, if it was all about the past, that would still be really, really disturbing for us because like, oh, I'm, I'm freed from the burden of past inconsistent living. But I don't know about you, but I want to live consistently now. I don't want to just be freed from the past. I want to start, I want to learn to live consistently in the future. I don't even have to think about guilt because I want to start living a life where I don't have to experience guilt because I'm, I'm, I'm consistent Forgiveness is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And science has told us that forgiveness makes a difference. It actually helps us. But we're not just left with the, 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 the conscious element that happens when we forgive ourselves and we receive forgiveness for the past. The, the, the Bible tells us that God wants to work in us to make us new creatures now, today, and to help us to live consistently, not just be forgiven of our inconsistency in the past. In Jeremiah chapter 31, we read this great promise. This is the covenant I will give with all people. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or one another saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. And then we read in Matthew chapter 26, again, the words of Jesus himself, that he took the cup and he gave thanks for it. And he gave it to them saying, Drink from it all of you. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out from the many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus has done what we could not to forgive us of our sins. But the promise continues that he is going to work in us to make us new creations today. That we can live consistent lives as we embrace the work of the Spirit in our hearts. And that God can, can, can write his law in our hearts and on our minds and that we can live consistently as we embrace God's work through Jesus for us. Not only are we forgiven for the past, which is good news. Kelly uh, McGonigal says this is great news. It actually it helps your accountability. But not only are we left on our own to, to be accountable, that we have a God who wants to work inside of us to help us to be the consistent people that we want to be, to live without uh, guilt. I don't know about you, 
But the idea of living without guilt is beautiful. Guilt is a burden. The promise is that in Jesus, we don't have to live with guilt anymore. God can do for us what we can't do for ourselves. That we can be consistent in our profession and our practice. May he do this in your life, in my life, in our lives today. Amen.